take a Bible, and I hope you'll turn to Matthew chapter 9, uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. I'll be looking at just at the uh, paragraph at the end of that chapter. With our uh, missions conference in two weeks, I wanted to bring a couple of sermons that, um, about the need for missions. And I thought I would try to cover some things that I, I doubt if our, our missionaries or our missions speaker will be uh, talking about. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Hear God's word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That ends the uh, reading of God's holy word. If you uh, know anything about missions, and especially the world Christian movement around the globe, you know that the place on earth where God has just done an incredible work over the past 120 years is the country of Korea. Uh, It's truly amazing what took place in the 1900s there. But it's not always been that way. All that happened in a relative short amount of time because the first Protestant church was planted in Korea in 1884. And just recently, the last count was now there are over 60,000. Over 60,000 churches And in the city of Seoul alone, there are over 6,000 Protestant churches. In 1970, 10% of South Korea professed to be Christians. By 1980, it was 20%. And then now it's well over 30, if not 40%. In Korea, in South Korea, six new churches are started every day. As far as mega congregations go, churches with just thousands and thousands of people, 10 of the 11 largest mega churches are all in the city of Seoul, Korea. The largest Methodist church in the world is there with over 10,000 members. The largest Presbyterian church is there with over 50,000 members. And the largest church in the world is there with well over 600,000 members. It's an Assembly of God church. You say 600,000 people? How would you get to know anybody? Well, you could choose to be in one of their 27,000 home groups. 27,000. I didn't say people. That's the number of groups. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is is small as far as denominations go. We we have approximately 300,000 members in our entire denomination. But the number of Presbyterians in South Korea numbers almost 5 million. When I was a campus minister, whenever I'd meet a student from South Korea, inevitably they were Presbyterian. And, uh, well, how has this come about? How did this take place? I want to tell you how it started. It started with a young man who was in his 20s named Robert Thomas. In 1863, Robert Thomas went to China as an employee of the London Missionary Society. And then in 1865, he met two Koreans 
and he learned that at that time all educated Koreans could also speak Chinese, therefore, or they could read Chinese, so therefore they could read the Chinese scriptures. He decided then and there that he would go to Korea and give the gospel to the people there in Chinese. Now, that may not seem like a huge decision to you, but it had great implications because at that time in history, Korea would forbid any foreigners from entering her borders on pain of death. Nevertheless, Mr. Thomas never wavered in his intent to take the gospel to Korea. So in 1866, when he was just 26 years old, 26 years old, he boarded an American-owned ship, and that ship planned to make a voyage of exploration into Korea. He had with him a supply of Bibles and gospel booklets, tracts. The ship crossed the Yellow Sea, it entered the mouth of the Taitong River, and it sailed very slowly up the 50-mile trip to the great wall city of Yingyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. Along the way, stops were made at various places. For any that were bold enough, Mr. Thomas would give a Bible, some of the printed literature that he had. Sometimes, just on the banks of the river, he'd leave a Bible and some of the literature Make a long story very short, and it gets very detailed, but as they came near Ying Yang, this great wall city, the Korean people had been told, they'd been lied to, saying that these foreigners had come to rob their ancient tombs, to steal their children, so forth. So thousands of Koreans lined the river on both sides, and all they had were flintlock rifles and guns. They shot those at the ship, but that did almost no damage. Finally, after they got up to the city and they saw how chaotic everything was, they decided to leave, but by then it was too late. Their ship ran aground on the first set of rapids coming back down the river. Uh, the Koreans set fire to the ship. The men tried to escape. They were all killed, clubbed to death, shot, killed with knives. Later, some of the Koreans that were there said that all of the men coming out of the water were armed with swords and pistols except one. They said this strange sight, this man staggered out of the water with his arms full of books, which he thrust into the hands of the Koreans as they clubbed him to death. Now, multitudes in Korea know the Savior today because that work started with Bibles that were given out by Robert Thomas. <clears throat> Afterwards, the officials in Yin Yang tried to gather and burn all the Bibles which he had left, but many copies were kept. They were read in secret. After the, the Korean War, from 1950 to 1953, churches then were bulldozed. But before that time, before the North Korean government bulldozed those churches, there were many Presbyterian churches in Yingyang City, many named in Robert Thomas's memory. And all along the Taitong River, they say that there are strong church buildings there, there were that mark the places where he gave out the gospel. See, Robert Thomas had more than an interest. He even had more than a concern. He had a passion. And this passage is talking about passion and compassion that Jesus had. I read it a moment ago, but we find at this stage of Jesus' ministry that his popularity is soared. It's, it's the, the popular phase that would wane toward the end. Um, the masses are following him. Uh, 
many positive things have happened in the chapter leading up to verse 35. In verse 18, Jesus is approached by a synagogue official whose daughter has died, and Jesus raises her from the dead. Along the way, a woman who's had this problem, this hemorrhaging for some 12 years, is healed by Jesus. Then two blind men are healed. And, and so it's a, a, a wonderful time when the multitudes are following him and these, these works of power to reinforce what he's preaching are, are done. But inevitably, where there's popularity, there's antagonism. And so we also find at this stage in his ministry that the hatred of the Pharisees and other religious leaders and their, their intent to see him killed is just growing and growing. Part of that, no doubt, arose because of things he said about them. Jesus, when he would teach, often would contrast the right way to do things with the wrong way as exemplified by the Pharisees. Back in chapter 6, he had taught the multitudes, When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Now, they would have known exactly who he was talking about. If you had been a Pharisee standing there, you would have known he was talking about you. He said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues to be seen. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. I mean, if you stood up in front of a crowd to say something and someone said, you hypocrite, wouldn't that provoke you? Well, they were provoked, and they're saying things about Jesus. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter Matthew 9, they say, that they accuse him of blasphemy. Then in verse 10, they, they condemn him for eating with sinful people. And then in verse 34, leading right up to what we're looking at this morning, they said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. They say, you're of the devil. What you're doing is empowered by the devil. So great popularity, great animosity. And now we are given something in verses 35 through 38 that we rarely see in Scripture. We are given a window into what Jesus was feeling. Typically, we're told what he did, where he went, often what he said. We're rarely told what he was feeling and thinking at the time, but we're told that here. It says in verse 36, Seeing the multitudes, all these crowds of people, seeing them, he felt compassion. What an accurate description felt compassion as he saw these people. Compassion is why he came into the world. Compassion is what drove him to set aside the glories of heaven. It's what motivated him to leave heaven and be born as a man in a sinful world. Compassion is what explains God satisfying his own demands for justice, that the wages of sin is death, that justice that hangs over our heads, that we have to pay for sin or else someone else pays for them. Jesus comes to be the person to pay for them. It was compassion that moved him to do that. But why, why was he compassionate? It tells us he felt compassion, verse 36, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless means torn, beaten. It's the picture of a sheep on its back, helpless, can't even get up. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, when he looks at us, he felt compassion because that's how he saw us. Now, some people say, well, he, it's just the physical needs he saw. No, we know that Jesus fed the hungry and he, he healed the sick, not all the time, but many times. We know that. 
But what he saw was their spiritual needs. The spiritual needs were, were great. These people had been taught the way to God was to, to live a certain way and that you could never do enough. And therefore, they were loaded down by their shepherds, the ones God had put in place. They were loaded down with all this legalistic minutia about Sabbaths and feasts and offerings. And they're just weighed down with this. And Jesus sees them, and they have no peace, and they have no forgiveness. They're not right with God, and they're certainly not enjoying any of this. And he's moved with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. What moves you to compassion? I mean, what, what do you... I don't mean what you have an interest in or even a concern, but what are you passionate about? Most of us are naturally passionate about our own families. Um, most of us are, uh, or those that are close to us. But, but what about strangers? If I was not a follower of Christ, I wouldn't care. And I'm not saying that proud of that. That's just me. I'm just an introverted, selfish, self-centered person thinking about my own ways and things. And all right, hey, you know, turn on the news and they're being shot in Egypt or Libya. What? I got plans tomorrow. I'm going to play racquetball at three o'clock. I mean, that's just my natural heart. So what Jesus felt is something very distinct probably than most of us. Because he saw beyond their physical needs, he saw their spiritual needs, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd cast down. I was greatly influenced in college by the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, as were several of you. And I don't remember the names of the staff person that told me this, but I heard him tell us that when he was a student, this, this guy that was now out of college and serving on staff with, with that organization, he went to some large Midwestern university, and he said one day he was with his Campus Crusade staff member at his college. And they were standing on the top of a building or on some kind of balcony where you could look at, at one of the focal points on the campus, and it was in between classes, and there were hundreds, if not thousands, of students moving very quickly, going their various ways on the campus. And the staff member asked him, what do you see when you look down there? And he said, well, I see those people walking that way. I see those people going there. I see that. That's what I see. He said, that's not what I see. He said, what do you see? He said, I see thousands of people that are either going to heaven or hell. That's what I see. Now, that was the mind of Christ to the degree that that was true and sincere in that fellow's heart. When we look out, when you look at the multitudes, when you think about the world, when you define uh, life around you and your values, do you think about the need people have to know Christ? I mean, there's nothing more politically incorrect today than mentioning hell and the very notion that we believe that there's a place called hell that Jesus taught about more than he taught about heaven, far more than he taught about heaven. Well, he looked at them and he had concern. We have Sunday schools in our churches. You know, we, we follow the Bible. It's right there in the book of Acts, you know, right after the starting, right after Pentecost, they started Sunday schools, right? Uh, not true. Sunday schools are relatively a new thing in church history. Let me tell you how they got started. And they started also, just like the gospel going to Korea, it started with one person. This man's name was Robert. His name was Robert Rakes. Robert Rakes uh, was in Gloucester. He was from a wealthy family. Uh, he inherited a newspaper. 
uh, that his father had had before him. And there it was in the middle of the 1700s in England. And we know about those times. We know about the dreadful labor conditions. And this was the precursor to the child labor laws and such things as that. Children, youth, working long hours, six days a week, meager pay, horrendous work and living conditions, despair, a severe judicial system which basically created a culture of lawlessness. Robert Rakes looked at that, he looked out at the multitudes, and he wanted to help. He wanted to provide an education for this working underclass, but he is also a Christian. And he wanted the education, he wanted them to have the education so they could read the Bible. So it it was a mission orientation. He believed education would be the key to help provide hope and to improve these people's lots in life. So he began his school on the one free day out of the week when they didn't have to work. What day was that? Sunday. Sunday school. That's how it started. He established a meeting place. He recruited some people to help him teach, and he began to teach three things, reading, writing, and Christian doctrine, the catechism. Reading, writing, and Christian doctrine. He was immediately opposed. The political establishment opposed him, and even religious people opposed him. Why do you think the religious people opposed him? (laughs) Things never changed. Sabbath. They said he was breaking the Sabbath. By teaching these kids on Sunday. Well, for three years, he and his paid assistants labored, working with these young children primarily between ages 6 and 14. He really believed that if by age 14 a person has not had education and has learned no discipline, they were, they were kind of a lost cause. So he focused on, on young kids. Rightly or wrongly, that was, his, that was his view. So they focused on kids ages 6 up to the most 14, more like 12. After three years... They had started Sunday schools in several locations. Positive benefits were already noticed by the employers. There was less fighting. The people were more cooperative. There was pride even in wearing clothes and personal hygiene. A change in attitudes had taken place. This continued for about 40 years until he died. By the time he died in 1811... That influence had spread to all parts of Great Britain. It had come to America. In 1831, the Sunday schools in Great Britain were teaching weekly one and a quarter million children. That was one quarter of the population of the whole country. All this began with a man who saw, and he saw the need. He looked beyond the surface, and he had compassion. We must see. I called Tom Anderson yesterday, uh, last night, and we were talking about the needs in Pleasant Hill. And I told him where I was reading a church newsletter out of Florida, and they were bringing short-term mission trips to Montgomery, Alabama this summer. I thought, that's odd. So I sent the material to Tom, and I called Tom. I said, Tom, they're bound to be going up there building houses and doing construction in poor neighborhoods. That's the only reason I could think they'd go to Montgomery, Alabama. I said, what if we've been praying about possibly acquiring a big house over there that's vacant right now. I said, what if that were bought and short-term teams could be housed there and they could be brought here? Well, if we got short-term teams from around the country and came here and worked in Pleasant Hill, so we started talking about the physical needs, houses and insulation and all sorts of things like that. 
He said, Chip, their houses over there, their monthly utility, their monthly heating bill is $700. Isn't that amazing? He said, these are rental houses with no insulation in them, cracks where the windows are. And so, but then we talked. He said, but, you know, we can do all we want to right there. But if there's no relationship, no accountability, no change of heart, it really is not going to make any difference. Because a lot of the houses that people have gone in and refurbished, they're in the same condition now that they were 10 years ago. That's just reinforcing the need. Are there physical needs? Yes, of course. Should we be compassionate? Yes. But the main need is spiritual, to see people's hearts changed. And that's what Robert Rakes knew. What do you see? Do you have a passion for souls? It's clear we should be Christ-like in this respect, to see people as God created them in his, in his image who will live forever. They will live forever with him or apart from him. And so we need such passion. I have to pray for such passion. I hope you pray for such passion, that we would have that. Well, Jesus moves on and he says one more thing. In response to this, in verse 37, he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are, are few. Jesus saw the multitudes as a great harvest. It was like a field ready to be harvested. But the problem is there aren't enough people to go gather in the harvest. There are many people with great spiritual needs to know God. And in many cases, they've been prepared by God's Spirit to respond. But the workers aren't there. The workers aren't there to carry out the harvest. Now, my global statistics are about 11 years old. I got most of them from Operation World. Many of you have this book. It's, it's, I just ordered the latest copy uh, yesterday. But mine, this is from around the year 2000, late 90s, something like that. Now, the world's population is a little over 6 billion at the present time. It's estimated that half of those, 3 billion, have never heard the gospel. And most of those are not in a place to hear the gospel. They are cut off. The world's population doubled between 1960 and the year 2000. It went from about 3 billion to 6 billion in 40 years. Estimates are that by the year 2020, it will be about 7.5 billion, and by 2025, it will be 8 billion. There are more than 13,000 languages in the world. And over 60% of those have no Bible. They have no Bible in their language. Although English is the largest official language in the world, the largest spoken language in the world is Chinese, a billion people. English is spoken by about a third of that, 350 million. Spanish is spoken just by a few less at 336 million. Arabic by 248 million, Bengali by 217 million, and so forth. Now, because of all this, because of this harvest out there, Jesus tells us to do something. In verse 38, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Ask. Ask God to send out workers. This is the starting point. This is the bottom line for all of us that know Christ. All of us should pray this prayer that God would raise up workers for the harvest. All of us are not called to preach. All are not called to be public teachers of God's Word. All will not be called to be cross-cultural missionaries, but we are to serve Him where we are. As the Puritans used to say, whether a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. 
We all can pray. We all can help with the harvest. So he's not just talking about ordained ministers. The need is always greater than the manpower to meet it. (laughs) You want to invest yourself in something that will always be bigger than you are and will not be accomplished in your lifetime is to be a laborer in God's harvest because a harvest is bigger than the manpower to meet it. But it's ready. There's no problem on the harvest end. The problem is with the workers, that there aren't enough of us. There's a lack of willing people to reap and to gather in the harvest, and that harvest cannot be gathered in by a handful of pastors or a handful of missionaries or by one denomination like the Presbyterian Church in America. It will take every believer with willing hearts, having the heart of Christ, the vision of Christ, and the compassion of Christ to be a worker in God's field. So I'd urge you to pray daily. Pray, ask the Lord of the harvest. Pray fervently, pray intelligently, pray for laborers for local needs, like I just told you in talking to Tom Anderson, in the needs. Pray, support works like Young Life and others that are evangelistic efforts in our own, in our own area. Pray for laborers for the harvest, but pray also for the world. Now, there's a difference between having an interest and a concern and a passion. I'll be honest with you, all I've known about Libya until this week was Gaddafi, desert, I mean, that was about it. Enemies, terrorist state, so forth. So, when I'm listening to Anderson Cooper Thursday night, and he's on the cell phone talking with a man who gave his name, his first name anyway, from Libya, and they're being attacked, shot, best we know, I mean, a little bit of news that's gotten out of there with these protests against this regime of 40-plus years by Muammar Gaddafi. Anyway, the man wanted Anderson Cooper to use his first name. And my buddy Anderson Anderson says, you sure you want us to do that? You know, what, yeah, aren't you fearful for your life in even making this phone call because they talked for about 10 or 15 minutes? And he said, don't you fear for your life? And the man said this. He said, we fear for our lives every day. <laughs> what difference does this make? He said, that's the way our whole lives have been. You have no idea what it's like, he said, to live here and the brutality that goes on. And, and more or less, I'm more than willing to die for this. Well, suddenly I found my uh, ignorance becoming an interest, moving to a concern so I picked up Operation World and began to read about Libya. Now, once again, this, is, this was back around t- the year 2000, so it's, it's somewhat dated. But at that time, I began to educate myself. Uh, they give all the statistics, the number of people that live there. 20, only 22% of the population is literate. <clears throat> only one in five can even read. Said no open evangelism is possible. The largest, the last missionary outpost was closed in 1960. See, see, Italy ruled Libya for over 30 years. And then when oil was discovered in the 1950s, everything changed. And then Gaddafi, they seized power of the military coup in the late 1960s, and he's, been, he's had it in control ever since then. Uh, but it basically says uh, no missionaries are allowed, no gospel witness. And at that time, when this was written around 2000, there was no... Bible written in Libyan Arabic. They didn't. Have, can you believe that? I mean, this is the year 2000, folks, and they don't even have a printed Bible in their language. 
So my interest, I found my interest changing to concern. And maybe it was hearing the man's voice. Maybe it's thinking about what's going on over there. What's God doing in history? What's he doing right now? So I went to Operation World, this book, website. And they have a thing called Pray 24-7. So I got updated information on Libya. Now listen to what I read. He said, the answers to prayer. The spiritual climate in Libya has changed significantly. This is from 11 years ago. God is doing a new work in this land. Could it be a response to the sustained and specific intercession of past years? They write, there is notable spiritual hunger among Libyans, but not enough Bibles for those seeking them. So now they do have a Bible in their language. Increasing numbers of Libyans are coming to Christ, and expatriate Christians now enjoy greater spiritual liberty than in the past. Isn't that amazing? Well, what's God doing? I don't know. But I, I, you can guarantee I'll be looking at the news a lot this week, even though that's just showing things from a political side. So we need the mind of Christ. I'll bring this to a close. So what's the score? How are we doing? There's an unprecedented harvest to be won. We're living in the largest time of ingathering in the history of the world, gathering people into God's kingdom. David Barrett, who edits the World Christian Encyclopedia, said that about 10 years ago, the number of people worldwide who profess faith in Christ each day was about 79,000 people a day, 79,000 people in the world. Today, it's like 178,000. <laughs> it's almost tripled. But I want to close with a testimony I read that I, I want to read this to you because I can relate to it. This is a testimony of a pastor that I've never met, but I was, I was reading some material that he had written on this passage. And he told his testimony. And I could relate to it. And he put in words some things that I have felt. Now, he's talking about the calling to be a pastor, but I think this applies to all of us that are followers of Christ. He wrote, Within six months of my conversion, I was absolutely restless. I was wrestling with the most important question of my life, and that is, what was I going to do with the time God had given me? I read the Bible, and I prayed, and I talked to other Christians as I sought to know why I was so uneasy and so preoccupied with that overriding question. Why had that question never occurred to me before? Why was I now so concerned about the purpose of my life when I had thought so little of that before? In time, of course, I came to understand that those early days of uneasiness were part of God's calling me to ministry. It wasn't long before I determined that I would never be satisfied doing anything other than some type of ministry. I had no idea, however, where that belief could lead. I only knew I had to begin preparing, and that is what led me to Bible college. I can remember thinking of the need in the world back then, back when I was first sensing a call to ministry. But I have to tell you, I never even dreamed of how great the need of mankind really was. That realization sets in as you begin serving God. He doesn't give you that understanding from day one, and it's a good thing, because little by little I came to realize the plight of the human race and that everything about us is touched by sin and has some relation to God. Then he wrote, last, last couple of sentences, One of the most significant moments in my early Christian life in preparation for ministry occurred when I realized I was developing a compassion for the lost and for those living in darkness. He said, 
I realized I was developing a compassion for the lost and those living in darkness. That concern for those in need is part of what drives anyone who enters ministry in some capacity. Compassion for the lost is, without question, one of the sure signs of God's call. You cannot give your life to a cause for which you have little regard. Let's take it out of the realm of pastoral call. I think that's true for all Christians. A compassion for the lost is a mark of a follower of Christ. A compassion for those we don't even know that they might spend eternity with God is part, is one of the marks of a follower of Christ. So I want to leave you with the question that he was asking himself, this this unnamed fellow here. What should I do with the life that God's given me? How are you investing, uh, even in the the best scenario, the years you have left, however many that that might be, uh, in his service? And whatever you're doing, Whatever profession or whatever else. I have a friend that sold a business in Georgia. Lots of money. Moved to another state. Did not need to start another business. But after a few years, he started the same business in that other state. I talked to him one day. I said, why are you doing this? He said, one reason. Make money for missions. His heart is in missions. He said, I did it to have more money to give to fund the missionary calls around the world. Well, I'm just slamming the brakes on. We're out of time. So if you have whiplash, just blame me. We're just stopping right there. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the compassion of Christ. We are here today because of his compassion. To become incarnate, to live a perfect life, to die in our place so that we could have life with you. May our hope and trust be in him, only not in anything that we think we can do to earn your favor. Help us to live with hearts of compassion toward others that look beyond just the surface, just beyond even physical needs and financial needs or things like that, but see that they have an eternal soul that will live forever with you or apart from you. And may we invest ourselves in that enterprise of the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to sing a song here at the end that's got words that go along with this. It's got a missionary theme to it. It's called All to Us. Chris Tomlin was one of the writers. It's new to some of you. Some of you already know.